So today, I get to kick off our Ezra and Nehemiah sermon series. Yes, I love it. And we'll be in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah for about 10 weeks, uh, give or take 12 weeks, a few Sundays here and there. We have other things happening. But I really geeked out on the sermon today. Like I, I, I did like a deep dive. And by the time I finished, I was, I told, uh, Dan and I, we were talking earlier this week, and I told him, I have over 8,000 words. I really do. And I went back, and I looked at it, and it was closer to like 9,000 words. So I'm telling you, be prepared this morning. Like, get comfortable. Just sit down and relax. I'm messing with you. I went back and I cut a bunch, and I even cut a bunch this morning. And so we might be cutting some more on the fly here. But today will consist mostly of teaching. And I'll be using sources, examples, and pictures from my Old Testament theology teacher, Dr. the Reverend Dr. James Carter um, from the University of Cambridge, who taught me Old Testament theology for nine months in my master's program. For nine months, I was walking through the Old Testament. And I learned so much during that time. And so, as we walk through this, I'll be referencing some things I learned in that class. I'll also be referencing some stuff from the Bible project, some imagery, and different things here and there. So, let's get started. Following the Babylonian captivity, the Lord directed a remnant of Israel to return to the land and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, the nation had neither king nor high priest nor prophet, but the Lord gave them a scribe named Ezra. And in Ezra 7, verse 10, we learn that Ezra was a man who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances to Israel. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah have an interesting role in the Christian Bible and in the history of the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. These books, Ezra and Nehemiah, aren't mentioned in the Gospels or in any of the teachings of Jesus. In his ministry, Jesus speaks about numerous books of the Hebrew Bible. Now, something I didn't tell you this morning is that I want your participation. And so even those of you who are tuned in online, like you can type this in the chat. So my first question for you, like if you know the answer to this, just shout it out. Let's see what makes up the Hebrew Bible. Let's hear it. What makes up the Hebrew Bible? What are the books that makes up the Hebrew Bible? Yes, the Torah. What else? The Psalms and the prophets. Yes. So the Hebrew Bible is often referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament or the Tanakh. And I believe we have a slide of that up there that breaks down those different books of the Bible and how they're broken down. And throughout his ministry, Jesus talks about the prophets. He talks about the Psalms. He even speaks from Deuteronomy. But not once in his ministry does he ever mention Ezra and Nehemiah. As a matter of fact, the apostles, they never speak about Ezra and Nehemiah. Only Matthew at the beginning of his genealogy. So what are the importance of these scriptures? Why do we need to study them today? These are some of the questions I'll be answering in this first part of my message. And how do they point 
towards Jesus. My message today will be broken down into three different parts. Part one, we'll talk context and how it points to Jesus. Uh, In part two, we'll look at the text itself. And then in part three, we'll look at how it applies to us today. So let me start by building the case as to why the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are important in the life of the church. Would you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And the immediate context of these verses in Paul's is Paul's admonition to Timothy to remain firm in his faith despite the false teachings and increasing godlessness he observes in the world. And we'll do a verse-by-verse exegesis here for these uh, two, two verses. Verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. I want to look firstly at from childhood you had known. And so this emphasizes Timothy's early exposure to the Jewish scriptures by his family. Now there's also a phrase in here that says sacred Writings. What do you think that's referring to? What are the sacred writings that Paul is speaking to here? Just shout it out. Scripture. All right. What, what scripture specifically is Paul referring to here? The Old Testament. Exactly. So at this time, many scholars believe that Paul was in prison at the end of his life. And at the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy and he's talking about the Old Testament, the sacred writings. At this time, the New Testament was not in written form. It was probably going around in oral tradition only. And so Paul is saying the sacred writings, the Old Testament, this was the scripture available at that time. And so Paul is saying it's able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. And so while the Old Testament doesn't explicitly talk about Jesus in the way the New Testament does, it points towards the need for salvation and a coming Messiah. Therefore, it provided Timothy with foundational knowledge that made understanding the gospel of Christ clear. Understanding the gospel of Christ clear. Verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture. While in the immediate context Paul refers to the Old Testament, this declaration also sets a standard for New Testament writings. Inspired by God. And so the Greek word here is theophanostos. And it can be translated as God-breathed. And so some of your translations might even say all scripture is God-breathed. And that is what Paul is saying here. But this underlines the divine origin and authority of the Bible. This verse also lists out the utility of scripture. Paul says it's good for teaching. What is that? Doctrinal instructions. It's good for reproof, conviction of sin or error. Correction, setting right what's wrong, and training in righteousness, guidance in God the living. Now, consider that list and think about all the things that the Bible is used for today that Paul does not highlight there at all. Isn't that interesting? Think about all the things the Bible is used for today and look at the list that Paul highlights there. I won't go down that road, so let's keep moving on. I won't get in trouble. So, why Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, um, 
The verses we just looked at from 2 Timothy serves as a powerful affirmation of the divine authority and practical utility of Scripture. And Paul's words hold deep and lasting implications for believers both in its original context and in today's contemporary setting. So this is for us today. So while Paul was directly referencing the Old Testament in 2 Timothy 3.15, his sentiments about its divine inspiration in verse 16 provide a framework for how we today should view both the Old and the New Testament. And so I I love that you might love a specific verse or a specific, uh, the Gospels or specific Psalms. Like that's important, but I encourage you to read the whole Bible because it all points to Jesus. Amen? Now, how do they point to Jesus? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah, while not directly prophesying about Jesus, create a context and narrative that points to the broader salvation history which culminates in Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, understanding Jesus through these books requires a thematic and theological approach rather than a purely prophetic one. And so I'll quickly highlight some themes and theological approaches to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which can be seen as pointing towards Jesus. And I believe there's a list up there for you. The first one, Rebuilding and Restoration. The primary narratives of Ezra and Nehemiah center around the return of the Israelites from Babylonian captivity or Babylonian exile and their subsequent rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And this act of rebuilding is symbolic of God's redemptive work. Just as the temple and walls were restored, Jesus comes to restore humanity's broken relationship with God. In him, the ultimate restoration and reconciliation is found to the true temple. While Ezra emphasizes the rebuilding of the physical temple, Jesus later claims to be the true temple. And there is a verse of reference there for you. The word of God, Ezra, is scribe, emphasizes the importance of God's law. And when he reads it aloud, the people repent. Jesus, often referred to as the Word in John 1, comes not only to fulfill the law, as alluded to in Matthew 5:17, but to write the law on our hearts. Leadership and sacrifice. Nehemiah portrays a form of servant leadership. He leaves the comfortable position in the Persian court to aid his suffering people. And he works alongside them to rebuild Jerusalem's wall. Similarly, Jesus leaves his heavenly throne, takes on human flesh, and sacrifices his life for our sake, epitomizing the servant leader. There are other themes in there, such as the anticipation of a greater redemption, the gathering of the nations, because we see this regathering of the people from exile, and we see that reflected in Revelation 7-9, where it speaks to people from all tribe, tongue, and nations coming together and worshiping him. We also see the role of the Messiah. So the task of rebuilding the temple and the city walls and restoring right worship Suggest a prophetic and priestly role. And while Ezra and Nehemiah foreshadows these roles, Jesus perfectly fulfills them. He is the prophet greater than Moses. He is the true high priest. And he is 
the true king of kings. So while Ezra and Nehemiah do not contain direct messianic prophecies about Jesus, their themes and narratives resonate deeply with the broader biblical message that culminates in the work of Jesus. Think about this in terms of the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's going to be a picture up there. And before that picture comes up, well, it's up there already now. I won't get into the chronological snobbery on the proper reading of the Order of Chronicles. I won't do that. But the main characters in the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis vary from book to book. And the series consists of seven books, each often featuring a different set of central characters. We have the Pavensi siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, among the most prominent. However, if we were to identify a recurring character who it points to, the main character throughout the series, who would that be? Exactly, Aslan. So, now, Aslan does not appear on every page of the series or in every scene of the movies, but it all points to him. Likewise, when Ezra and Nehemiah is read in the context of the whole Bible, these books become part of the tapestry that showcases God's redemptive plan for humanity, which is fulfilled in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God. We thank you that you continue. There's this thread throughout the Bible that consistently points to you, calling us back to you, Lord. And that is still your heart for us today, Lord. So I pray that as we go through this book, Lord, may our stories weave into what you're calling us into, God. May we live that out individually, but also as a church community. Speak to us through your words this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. That was just the intro. We're going here. All right? Part two. This is a text itself. So in 1861, Confederate forces attacked Fort Sumter. You guys are familiar with this. I've been studying a bunch of American history. And this was a significant crisis in U.S. history, leading to a four-year conflict between the northern states the Union and the Southern States, the Confederacy. And the Civil War was a result of deep-rooted political, economic, and social differences between the North and the South, particularly over slavery issues. And so for a time there, the U.S., we were a Southern and Northern state. Likewise, Israel was a United Kingdom for only a brief period of time, 112 years And at the end of 112 years, Solomon died. And I think we have an image that shows that separation of the northern and southern state. So upon Solomon's death, God had declared that the kingdom of Israel would become divided because of Solomon's idolatry. The ten tribes in the north would split off under the leadership of Jeroboam, a leader from the most powerful tribe in the north, Ephraim. And God himself appointed Jeroboam to be king of the north in 1 Kings 11. Meanwhile, in the south, the two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were ruled by Solomon's heir, his son, Rehoboam. And during the centuries that followed, both the leadership of the north and the south generally went from bad 
to worst. And if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, you'll know that we read this some few weeks ago. I even believe, I think we have another image there that highlights the different leadership during that time that speaks to who were good and who were bad. But I want to encourage you, if you haven't read that before, again, like go read the whole Bible. It is very, very interesting. Go read the whole Bible. Let's keep moving here. So turning to Ezra, ancient Jewish tradition maintains that Ezra is the author of the book called Ezra. That's where we are. In fact, Ezra is believed to have authored Nehemiah and Chronicles as well. And until the third century, Ezra and Nehemiah were a single book in both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. It wasn't until the 9th century onwards that the books were separated and this became standard in Bibles dating back to the 13th century. And this is important to know because, honestly, you should never do one without the other. So it was done as one scroll. It was read as one scroll, as one book in the past. And so we're doing Ezra and Nehemiah over the next few weeks. That's important to know. Ezra was a scribe in Israel, and scribes were the literary class of Israel. They were responsible for guarding the word of God, teaching it, and for writing commentary or instructions concerning the law. And we see in Ezra's case, they were often the historians of the culture. Now, in the book of Ezra itself, it has a curious timeline focusing on two periods of history. And you'll see why I'm talking to all of this history and giving you all of this context here in a bit. Chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra focus on Cyrus, the king that permits Israel to return to her land. The second part of the book begins with Ezra's appearance in chapter 7. Now, between chapter 6 and 7 lies a gap of a hundred years. That isn't spelt out in the book for you, but there's this gap of a hundred years where the story of Esther takes place. And we studied that book earlier this year. So Esther is ruling as queen in Persia during the period when Israel was working to reestablish itself in Jerusalem. So Ezra and Nehemiah record the final events of the Old Testament chronologically. As the only prophet to write after Nehemiah is Malachi. And then Matthew comes on the scene and records the next events to take place in the nation of Israel. So let's start our study of Ezra by looking at the first step of Israel's restoration, which repeats the final two verses of Chronicles, another book of Ezra. Ezra 1, 1 to 4. It says, Now in the first year... Of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with you. 
Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. There's a lot happening in those first four verses. And so the book of the author of Ezra assumes or believes that you know all this history about Israel. And if we could pull up the Bible project slide there that takes us through the whole book of Ezra. And I'll walk through something this through something here. The book of Ezra, remember I talked about the Chronicles of Narnia, how in many ways it is one book, but there are so many series in there. The book of Ezra has five different scenes that takes place in them. And I'll break that down for you. And so you can see it's spelled out there. But uh, specifically, Ezra 1 to 6 focuses on the temple. And the leaders who lead that movement is Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Jeshua. Ezra 7 to 10 focuses on the Torah and the community. And this is led by Ezra and the Levites. And so there's this. And then Nehemiah 1 to 7 focuses on the city and the walls. And that is led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8 to chapter 12a speaks about covenant renewal. That is led by Ezra and Nehemiah. And then it ends Nehemiah 12b to 13, which focuses You'll see that the temple is neglected. You'll see that the walls are dishonored. And you see that the Torah is ignored. And Nehemiah ends the chapter with beating people with a stick and pulling out their hair and all of this thing. But the theme throughout the book and even throughout from the Old Testament, you'll see is this theme of return and rebuild, renewal and reform. But then there's a regression and it starts all over again, which is why Jesus had to come. And so this is what the book is pointing to. And so after 70 years of captivity, the Lord moves as he promised to bring Israel back to the land. Cyrus's proclamation serves two primary purposes to authorize the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and to allow any Jew to return to Jerusalem for this purpose. He recognizes the Lord as the God of heaven and even credits him with his own position as a ruler. A few things I want to cover here. The action of Cyrus is seen as a direct fulfillment of prophecy, specifically from the prophet Jeremiah. You can see that reference in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29 and in the book of Isaiah. God had spoken through Jeremiah that the exile would last 70 years, and now the time had come for the Israelites to return home. We don't have time to read through all of that scripture in Jeremiah, but let's turn to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 45. It says, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Isaiah proclaimed this 200 years before Cyrus came on the scene. 200 years. 
And this is evidence of God's sovereignty. The verse from Isaiah and the ones we just read from Ezra, verse 1 to 4, underscores the sovereignty of God in history. That even a pagan king like Cyrus can be moved by the Lord to accomplish his divine will. And the idea that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus indicates that God was actively orchestrating events for the benefit of his people and his promises. He is faithful, church. We sang it this morning. That should be an encouragement to us as life spring. The Lord has spoken so many words about us and over us. And we're in this campaign in the month of September, praying and seeking his face. Keep sharing what the Lord is speaking to you because he is faithful. Now, Cyrus doesn't just permit the return. He also calls for resources to be given to support this endeavor, emphasizing a royal endorsement and significant backing for the project. Cyrus is saying every Jew, no matter what their place is in society, whether they are a member of the king's court, a laborer, or even a criminal serving time in prison, they are all free to go. No one who wishes to serve the Lord of God in Israel is barred from leaving. Secondly, Cyrus ordered that the Jews' neighbor, neighbors give financial support to those who decide to return to the land. The people are to receive silver, gold, and other goods. And all of these gifts are to be used to support the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Can I just say, no true work of God has ever failed for lack of funding. I'll repeat that again. No true work of God has ever failed for lack of funding. That should be an encouragement to us. So as we move forward here, Ezra reports how the nation responded to the king's edict. Verses 5 to 11 of Ezra 1. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithradath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 100 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, you might imagine that every Jew would get up immediately and flee. All of them would say, yes, we get to return. We'll do this. Much like the generation that left Egypt, but only a remnant chose to return. I'll have more on that later. And finally, we come to the end of chapter 1 here, and it ends with an important turning point in the history of, Ezra, of Israel. Ezra says, the exiles went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
And we see the Lord's faithfulness. And we see references like things similar to what took place in Egypt. And we see it included the story of Joseph. In the passage we read, we hear about Judah, Benjamin, Levites, the Lord's providence and the intention to fulfill promises through the Gentiles. We see that happening in the text we just read. And once again, the Lord moves to bring Israel to himself. And in the next chapter, Ezra lists almost 50,000 or so who made the trip. That brings us to Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. It reads like this. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. As we keep reading, you'll notice that out of the millions of Jews who entered the land under Joshua and the millions who were taken in by Nebuchadnezzar's conquest, only 50,000 returned. Well, almost 50,000. And this is proof of a basic principle of the Old Testament theology that true Israel has always been only a remnant in the nation. While a larger number may call themselves Israel, only a small number are the saints who know him truly. And in the verses we are about to read next, we see this rare moment when the difference is very easy to see. Now, as because only those whose hearts were stirred by the Spirit, they went up. So most of the rest of the chapter of Ezra, chapter 2, consists of the count of those who left for Jerusalem. And it forms a genealogy, and as such, it demonstrates a nation hadn't lost its identity during its years of captivity. Now, the list is long, and the names are unfamiliar and difficult to pronounce in some cases. And here in my notes I have, but let's read the list. But we won't read the list because we don't have time. So we'll... We'll move forward here, but I want to bring your attention to chapter, I mean to verse 2 of chapter 2. And maybe we can pull that up on the screen there. It says, these came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, and Mordecai. I want to highlight those names. Because these are the leaders, in a sense, who first stepped out. And it includes Zerubbabel, who is often seen as a chief leader. As we continue to study Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that. And Jeshua, the high priest. Nehemiah and Mordecai is also listed in verse 2 of chapter 2. But they are probably not the same figures we recognize from the books of Nehemiah and Esther. The Nehemiah of the book doesn't enter Jerusalem for another hundred years. Remember I told you about that gap earlier. And so, and the Mordecai of Esther, we did this story, we did that book earlier this year, and if you've read it, you'll know that Esther remained in Susa in the Persian Empire. So these are different people. I'll jump through the different verses here, and I'll highlight some themes that I see. Verse 335, returning families. The emphasis on specific families underscores the importance of lineage and the inherited land, reiterating the theme of restoration to the lands allocated during the time of Joshua. 
verses 36 to 39, we see returning priests. This section lists the priests by lineage. And the priests had a vital role in Jewish society, responsible for religious ceremonies, sacrifices, and temple upkeep. And so their return was crucial to restore proper worship in Jerusalem when they got there, when the temple had been rebuilt. In verses 40 to 42, we see Levites and other temple officials. The Levites assisted the priests in their duties. The singers and gatekeepers also played essential roles in the temple's function. And so their return was key to the full functioning of the temple. In verses 43 to 54 of chapter 2, we see temple servants. And these are individuals dedicated to serving in the temple. Their specific roles aren't outlined here, but they would have performed various tasks in and around the temple. And then verses 55 to 58, we look at descendants of Solomon's servants. And these are likely descendants of non-Israelite slaves or servants from the king from King Solomon's time. And so the purpose and importance of the list is to establish that these returning families could justifiably lay claim to being the same Israel that left seventy years earlier. The list is re- Repeated in Nehemiah 7. Well, we didn't read it this morning, so you'll probably hear it then or go back and read it. It's repeated in Nehemiah 7, so you'll hear it then. And as we move forward in the text here in Ezra chapter 2, verses 59 to 63, we have another group of dubious origins who tried to join the group leaving Persia. And I want to look at verse 62. It says, These searched among their ancestral registrations, the people mentioned in verses 59 to 61. These people searched among their ancestral registrations, but could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and Thummim. So in verse 59 to 60, they're unable to determine their lineage and heritage, and they were rejected. See, the Jews were meticulous record keepers when it came to genealogies. And a nation was formed by God on the basis of birth relationship and a covenant, covenant promise, which was transferred by birthright. So tracing genealog- genealogies is an essential part of Jewish life and history. And in verse 61 to 62, we see that there's a second group of priests who also tried to apply, and they were also denied. And in verse 63, it says they had to wait until the governor came. And the governor was probably more than likely Zerubbabel, and he decreed that those whose priestly lineage was in question could not partake of the most holy things, which were typically reserved for priests. And the resolution would have been to their status of whether they were allowed to enter would come from the Urim and Tumim. And you might remember that reference from Exodus chapter 28. There's a reference there. And these were priestly devices, probably stones used for making decisions. And so the high priest would ask yes or no questions. And these special stones would show the answer in some way. Finally... Ezra records the wealth of this group and the diversity of life that emigrated from Persia. 
verse 6 to 4. It says the whole assembly numbered 42,360. Beside their male and female servants who numbered 7,337. And they had 200 singing men and women. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. Their donkeys, 6,720. Some of the heads of father's household, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. So the whole assembly with men, women, children, servants, entertainers were nearly 50,000. And that's a large group to travel anywhere but a small number to resettle in a desolate land. And as they leave, the text tells us as they arrive, when they arrived at the temple, there couldn't have been much for them to see there because it had been destroyed. Remember, the first temple had been completely destroyed by Babylon. But they had been sent specifically to rebuild this structure. And it was probably a very emotional moment. The heads of some of the families, based on what they saw there, offered willingly and immediately to give of their own possessions. And I want to probably break that down into today's terms so you can know how much they gave. So a drachma was equivalent to a denarius, which is one day's wage for a working man. So just the 61,000 gold coins represented 167 years of wages. What does that look like in our day? Well, in 2021, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the lowest average household earned $35,217 per year. This then is about $5,881,239 in donations. That's a lot of money. It is. But scholars believe it is well likely more than that. That it was probably more like around $10.2 million. And so clearly, the people of Israel are moved in a dramatic way by the sight of their temple in rubble. And so are their hearts. So how does this all apply to us today? Well, there are three things I want to leave you with. And the first one is this, the mighty hand of God that moves kings. Ezra 1, 1 to 4. At the very onset of Ezra, we encounter a truth that defies human understanding. The Almighty God, whose wisdom spans the ages, moved the heart of King Cyrus, a pagan king, to fulfill prophecy. Church, God is able to move the heart of a pagan king to accomplish his divine will. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. May this truth sink deep within us. There is no authority, no power, no ruler that God cannot influence for his purposes. The practical application for our life is this. In our lives, when faced with seemingly insurmountable challenges or when dealing with people in authority, we can trust in the Lord's overarching control. 
The God we serve is capable of shifting the course of nations, of shifting the hearts of leaders, of shifting the hearts of kings. Do not lose heart when circumstances seem dire. God is still on the throne, turning hearts and dictating the course of time. Our task is to remain faithful and prayerful, trusting that God can move any heart according to his will. The second thing is this, the stirring of the faithful remnant, Ezra 1, 5 to 11, and chapter 2, verses 1 to 70. As we walk through the text, we were met with the remnant of Israel, those who felt the divine tug on their heartstrings to return and rebuild. You know, God has always preserved a faithful remnant, even during times of national apostasy or exile. In 1 Kings, it says, 19 verse 18, yet I have left them, left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Church, there is a stirring happening even today. God is calling his remnant to rise up, to step out of the comforts of complacency, and to walk in faithfulness. The challenge for us is to discern his voice and respond with immediate obedience, knowing that our God never calls without failing to equip us or failing to empower us. Therefore, In our Christian journey, the call is to obedience. And this call might mean sacrificing comfort or facing challenges. We must ask ourselves, are we part of God's faithful remnant today? Are we willing to step out in faith, even if it means standing alone to heed his call on our lives? Are you willing to do that? You know, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but earlier this week, Ann Kincaid shared a word with Pastor Dan and some of our staff, and I, it, it aligned so much. When I had already written a sermon, it, it aligned so much with what we're talking about today. Here's what she said. As I've been praying for a church body, I keep returning to the word, clean slate. She shared this a couple weeks ago with us. Pondering how that concept might apply to the present crossroads LifeSpring is at regarding a new church location. As I began reading Ezra this morning, I was struck by the fact that not all the Israelites were willing to join in. My questions are, why was this so? And where is the application for us today? The reluctant Israelites had grown accustomed to and comfortable with their pagan culture. And likewise, we are acculturated. Even before being isolated by a global pandemic, we, the church, were accustomed and comfortable with our high-tech, materialistic, and rich-by-world standards lifestyle. For us today, it is the same cultural divide. Do we surrender all to launch into God's unknown country or territory or hang on to our former status and positions? It is my feeling that we are all facing such a choice and decision. And in honesty, we all have questions. Am I willing to give and give up control of the gifts, talents, and abilities God has blessed me with? What does my church life and my individual daily look like? What should they look like? Church, what do they look like for you today? What do they look like for you today? My last thing is this, and I'd love to call up the worship team at this time. The symphony of unity, Ezra chapter 2. In the second chapter of Ezra, it's easy to get lost in all the list of names and numbers. But let's not gloss over this. This chapter stands as a testament 
to the integral value of every individual and family in God's grand narrative. Each name represents a unique calling. As we read in Romans 12:5, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members of one another. The practical application for us is this. In our church and communities, every individual, regardless of their role, brings unique gifts and value. We are called to recognize, honor, and work collaboratively with every member of the body of Christ. So today, in our midst, at Life Spring, every believer, every child of God, each of you, each and every one of you, this is for you. Each of you has a role to play in this. From the youngest to the eldest, from the new believer to the seasoned veteran of the faith, all are crucial in the tapestry of God's church. Let us cherish one another, celebrate our diversity, and work in harmony for the glory of the one who calls us together. Ezra 1 and 2 beckons us to gaze upon the awe-inspiring faithfulness of God. It's a clarion call to trust in His sovereignty, to walk in obedience, and to cherish the unity of the body. As we leave here today, may these truths be the anchor of our souls. And may we, like the Israelites of old, play our part in the beautiful story of God's redemption and restoration. Play your part, Ice Spring. Play your part wherever you may go. Those of you tuned in online, play your part. Amen.